Minnesotans can eat pineapple in January. Think about it. You say, well, of course we can. It's just a short trip to the grocery and we can purchase any number of exotic foods from all over the earth, any season of the year, any time of the day or night. That's our world. There is, of course, a huge upside to this modern-day privilege. It's a privilege which emperors did not enjoy in ages past, nor did Minnesotans not all that long ago. The upside is that we can eat fresh pineapple in January, or mangoes, or pomegranates, grapes, and oranges, things that would never grow here at that time of year. not going to taste quite as good as it would taste where it's grown naturally of course but we can consume it we can have it for ourselves we can eat tropical fruit in the dead of winter but there's also a downside to our privilege in our modern world where food is flown to us from almost anywhere and is packaged for us and put quite cheaply at our fingertips, we lose some of the soul-nurturing wonder of anticipation, managing, and celebrating the harvest seasons. We sacrifice the anticipatory joy of foods harvested at the pinnacle of their maturity and on the seasonal rotation year by year by year. We experience this, I guess, on a small scale, don't we? Uh, Fresh apples harvested off of a tree can only be experienced in the fall of the year and can be experienced around these parts. We experience it on a small scale, I guess, in that eggnog and pumpkin pie are not quite as available at some times of the year, let's say in January or February, as they might be right now. And then again, I guess there's holiday foods you're really glad only show up once a year. But our distance from the soil... And our lack of experience in cycling through the harvest seasons, it really dulls our sensitivities to one way that God teaches His people to see His glory and appreciate His grace. I think it would be wise for us in our sanctification to recognize this. It's no crime on our part that we live in the day in which we live or in the part of the country where we live or have the occupations that we have. But it is wise for us to recognize this distance. To recognize what we lack and what we do not receive in our spiritual education. And so then I think it is wise for us to work hard at bridging the gap from our world to the biblical context in which this was not always the case. God ordained the education of His people under the Mosaic Covenant, that they would learn about Him through the seasons of life and particularly through the harvest that took place in the land of promise through the ages, year after year, generation after generation. I'd like us then to consider today, as we come to indeed our first fruits offering as a church uh, through the emphasis of Ministry Advance 2016, to consider as we go back to the Old Testament context, the first fruits under the Old Covenant. We would have to consider, first of all, Israel's long journey to the Promised Land. You remember when Israel was just a family, not a nation, not even yet a clan, she journeyed from the Promised Land to Egypt. And how did the Israelites make a living in Egypt? You remember as they came into the land, the first thing that they did, they were put into service of Pharaoh in watching sheep. They had a pastoral duty there in Egypt, and their grain came not from the land as they raised it, but was given to them by Joseph. At that time, Pharaoh really owned all of the grain, and they received that grain from him as shepherds. We know that eventually Israel became a nation of slaves. And what did they do as slaves? They were not out harvesting the fields, but they were making bricks and building cities. And so they gained their employment in this hard labor of constructing the cities of Pharaoh. 
So for 400 years, the Israelites, from what we can detect in various places, they raised vegetables, much like some of us might have a garden in the backyard. But when it came to really producing their food, this came from the Egyptian establishment. They were slaves, and they were shepherds, 400 years. Then there was the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness as they left Egypt in the Exodus and as they worked their way to the promised land through their own disobedience for 40 years, an entire generation lived how? As nomads, wandering around from place to place, bringing their livestock with them. They were not again farming. They were not raising crops. So for four and a half centuries, Israel had really no understanding of how it what it meant to live off of the grain that grows from the field and other types of cultivatable trees the harvest of the orchard and the harvest of the field was something they understood but not something in which they found direct participation well then we come to israel's entrance into the promised land the, how did, the generation that entered the land had grown up as nomads, wandering around in the wilderness, and they had been recently trained as warriors to come in and to conquer the land. And once the land was largely conquered, they had a lot to learn about raising crops and tending orchards. Israel soon learned that the hot summer sun baked the ground hard. It was a time where you would just waste your seed, not a time to plant. Then in October, November, there's a short season of rain known as the former rains, which softens the soil so that hay and barley and wheat can be planted in the soft soil. These crops then grow throughout the mild winter months, and they receive periodic rain through those months to allow them to nurture. And then in April, there is another concentration of rain, so distinct to the land, so anticipated, and regular in its, in its uh, nurture, that they called it the latter rains. And these rains bring the crops to maturity. So before the heat of summer kicks in again, this is not Minnesota, before the heat of summer kicks in again, you have to get all of your harvest in, or it will die in the heat. Then from April through middle of October, there is no rain. And this is the growing season for vineyards and orchard crops, grapes, figs, pomegranates, olives, and the like. These crops are sustained by heavy dews every night, and they're harvested right after the former rains, bringing those fruits to fruition, and then a harvest that follows these former rains. Now I think, and we've discussed this before, that God really selected the promised land for Israel as much as He selected Israel for the promised land. That this was a place of learning, a place of growth, a place of development for them. The topography of the land, so distinct from Egypt, as well as the unique growing seasons, made this a place where Israel would always sense her need to depend upon God to sustain and beautify life. It was a fertile place and yet a difficult place to plant sometimes. You needed God. In Egypt, there was ample amounts of fish in the river. Didn't have to do anything to really encourage that. For the most part, they were just there and you could get fish out of the Nile. And it really did not matter if the rains came because the Nile could be used for irrigation, to irrigate your vegetables and the crops of the field. And so this land of Israel was very unique. This land was different in numerous ways, and God acknowledges that. I, we have a number of texts I'd like to look through today. We don't typically just put them up on the screen here. You're certainly free to turn to them, but we will look at a number, and so I'd like to uh, put that up here for us for sake of time and to work through these texts. But notice how in the, in the second giving of the laws, the Israelites are preparing to come into the land. God emphasizes this truth. For the land that you are entering to take possession of it is not like the land of Egypt. 
He wants them to draw a direct contrast with what they have experienced for 400 years. You've come from this land where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys which drinks water by the rain from heaven. A land that the Lord your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. The conclusion is not that God does not care about the land of Egypt or that God is uh, disinterested in other parts of the world. But the idea here is that this land will uniquely demonstrate that you are utterly dependent upon the care of God. You must have rain. Now you can dig a ditch in Egypt and bring water to your crops. But here, God must bring the rain. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve Him with all your heart and with all your soul, He will give you the rain for your land in its season. The early rain and the latter rain. That you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And He will give grass in your fields for your livestock and you shall eat and be full if you obey my commandments this is God's promise in the land take care then lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them note that point we'll come to it later but then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. It's His gift to Israel. But disobeying His commandment will result in famine. I think God longed for Israel to realize two principles of worship in the land as we consider this text. First, the land and its yield of crops was God's gracious gift to His people. That should be fairly clear to us. But he stresses this. I'm giving you this unique land. It isn't necessarily a simple place to live, but it's a place of great blessing. And secondly, Israel must walk by faith, fully dependent upon God's grace for future crop yields. It comes from him, and it will thrive in relationship to him. This land itself, is part of your relationship with the Lord. Every season, when barley was harvested, when wheat was gathered from the field, every season, when olives were pressed for oil and grapes were crushed for wine, at routine points throughout the year, God continued to remind His people this was all due to His gracious provision and His love for them. This land of bounty, was theirs because He was a God of goodness and grace. So God longed for Israel to worship Him and to recognize that He was her joy and her great giver. She could panic and turn to the false gods of the land, trusting in them to provide greater fertility. She could believe the Canaanite lies that placing false gods in a place of priority and placating them along the way would yield greater harvests. This would be an active temptation for the Israelite. But God says, don't do it. Here, you can depend entirely upon me. And He promises to Israel that He alone would bring the rain. That He alone could be trusted. So for Israel... I can say it this way, farming was a function of faith. Farming was a function of faith. And to stress this point with regularity, God devised a ritual to help the Israelites remember that the harvest, past, present, and future, belongs to the Lord and is supplied by His grace. This ritual was called the offering of first fruits. In the spring of the year, at the harvesting 
of the grain fields as that harvest began, God instituted the festival of Passover and it was coupled with the week-long festival of unleavened bread, which the Israelites were to do just that, to eat bread that did not have yeast in it, reminding them of God's passing over the Israelites in Egypt, sparing the firstborn and bringing them out into the wilderness where they ate unleavened bread. This festival every year commemorated this great deliverance of the Lord. But to stress this point regularly, God directed the start of this festival to start with the cutting down of a sheaf. That's a a big bunch of grain. And bringing that sheaf to the priest. So we read in Leviticus 23, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel. And say to them, when you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. Now this is looking at particularly the barley harvest, which is the first grain to grow to be ready for harvest in the fields and notice it's interesting that it's offered on the day after the sabbath the sheaf is waved before god probably to draw attention to it and just to visibly stress that it represented the full harvest so as it's waved back and forth it's kind of waved over the field to say this stands for the whole harvest Now seven weeks later, the Israelites were to take two baked loaves of bread and to offer them as first fruits offerings as well at the festival of Pentecost. You shall count seven full weeks from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. You shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall present a grain offering of new grain to the Lord. You shall bring from your dwelling places, here's how the grain's to be presented, two loaves of bread to be waved, made of two tenths of an ephah. They shall be a fine flour and they shall be baked with leaven as first fruits to the Lord. Don't think loaf like we have, wonder bread or something in a plastic wrapper. But it's something maybe more the size of a small hamburger bun or something like that or a rounder uh, in, in, in perhaps a bit larger in size, but just um, uh, uh, something like a, a dinner roll uh, of sorts. They are brought then before the Lord, and notice here again the phrase, they are offered as first fruits to the Lord. Now Pentecost came toward the end of the season of reaping the grains, but there are still crops to be harvested and uh, potentially wheat, and generally would be wheat which matured later than barley. And I'm limiting our focus here today primarily to uh, the fields and to what is reaped there. But first fruits offerings were also offered for uh, uh, the orchard crops and the vineyards, the grapes, the figs, the olives, even the wool of sheep. Indeed, every firstborn of every animal and the firstborn of every woman were to be redeemed. Obviously the redemption here, not an offering of sacrifice, but five shekels of silver given to redeem the firstborn son of every woman. So in the firstborn, in the wool of the sheep, in the orchard and in the field crops, all in all of it, as these seasons come and go, the Israelites are coming before the Lord with first fruits offerings. And in this particular emphasis, cutting off a sheaf and waving it before the Lord, waving this grain before Him as the the barley harvest came in and as this season of harvest came to be, remembering the first fruits offering. Now, let's, let's narrow in a little bit on what does this mean? Why this first fruits offering? We kind of get an idea of it, but I think to be more specific, there's three meanings at least. And the first is celebratory thanks to the Lord of the harvest. With this initial evidence of the harvest in hand, what is the worshiper saying? Clearly, this is a gift from God. I take this sheaf, I give it to the priest, and the priest waves it over the fields, 
symbolically saying thank you, Lord. Everything that we receive, our food for this year, as we now take in this barley harvest and begin to store it up for, the, for this next year, we give thanks to God. He is the provider of all. This is what it is saying. This is what first fruits means. The sacrifice gives proper recognition to God as the giver of every good gift and the Lord of nature. Secondly, it, means it is a representative consecration of the remaining harvest. So this initial first fruits offering is speaking of the entire harvest. The first fruit sanctifies the whole field. The single sheaf consecrates everything. So the part consecrating the whole. Leviticus 19.23 considers, is interesting, it calls trees uncircumcised. And what it means is that this tree has not been used, the first fruits offering has not been yet given, and therefore it's as if everything this tree grows is unconsecrated, it's unholy. It's not been recognized in the first fruits offering. Hosea 9.3 uh, parallels that same idea. And so until a first fruits offering is made, the wool from lambs and the grapes from vines and the olives from a thousand trees and the standing barley, wheat in the fields, and the firstborn were unholy. They were not consecrated yet to the Lord. And it was as if then without that first fruits offering that those who continued to reap the harvest of the field were stealing from God. They were taking His gift and not acknowledging that He was the giver. They weren't. It, it's not that God's standing back and going, hey, look what I've done for you. You need to acknowledge this and tell me how great I am. That's not the orientation at all. But rather, God is saying, if you consume these gifts from me and do not recognize them as from my hand, your relationship with me is headed straight toward idolatry. And you then are headed straight to destruction. There is no idol in this world that will not destroy you. I want you to know that every good gift comes from your God. And so we are able to receive these gifts and to rejoice in them when we see them as all consecrated to the Lord because they all come from Him. The third idea is anticipatory hope for future harvest. I think these three ideas can be seen in the first fruits offering. First anticipates, of course, a sequence to come. The first fruits offering was an appeal to God to pour out His blessing upon the rest of the harvest. The worshiper does not offer sacrifice after all the grain is harvested and stored. That's interesting, isn't it? I mean, when the worshiper comes before the Lord... The fields are all standing out there with grain that need to be harvested. The worshiper offers a first fruit sacrifice while the grain stands. And so the worshiper comes with the first of the harvest, saying symbolically, I start harvest season with worship. Everything that is to come relies on God's grace, and I know it. There's a man that I knew, and I don't agree with him in this, but he had a conviction about the Lord's Day that you do not work. In any way, shape, or form, the Lord's Day is given to the Lord. And I bless him for it and encourage him in it. But he was a farmer. And during harvest season, that created some challenges. But that man, in this conviction, would wait until midnight if harvest started on a Sunday. He would worship the Lord and sit in the pew of the church that day, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and he would wait while all of his farmer friends were out harvesting their fields. And at midnight, he'd fire up the combine and start the harvest. There's something at least of an illustration there, whether we would support his thinking about Monday starting at midnight and all of that. Nonetheless, there was, I think, there a proper orientation. Worship comes first. And in a different way, but re in a related way, 
So it was with the Israelites in this first fruits offering. Worship comes first. The field is standing. The work is out there to be done. We go to the priest and we offer this first fruits offering saying it's all of God. Not only what He's given, but we're trusting Him for what He will give. And so three concepts emerge out of this. First fruit sacrifices offered the first of the harvest. Secondly, first fruit sacrifices offered the best of the harvest. Now this is indicated in Leviticus 34 and verse 26. There's not much made of this, but the idea is when you gave the first fruits, you didn't go into the field and find the most difficult area where the crop wasn't very good and pull out the worst. But as Leviticus 34, 26 indicates, you brought out the best as a representation of what was to come. And first fruit sacrifices, thirdly, offered worship before harvest, as we've illustrated. So in the Old Testament, first fruits deals almost exclusively with literal sacrifices. Grain, just to use that one example, waved before the Lord over the fields to consecrate them. But God begins in the Old Testament to use first fruits also metaphorically, symbolically, indicating that the first fruit sacrifices point forward to something else, at least pointing forward to a deeper and richer concept than just bringing that first offering. We look, for instance, at Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 3, which reads, Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. That is the picture, for instance, of somebody coming in and grabbing the sheaf that was in that priest's hand and running off with it. Taking that grain and eating the sacrifice and offering to the Lord. That's how God looked at it when people hurt Israel. Because Israel was his holy people. Israel was his first fruits harvest. He looked at the people this way. So by electing Israel as his people, God initiates a redemptive plan. He initiates a redemptive pattern that will find greater meaning in the progress of Revelation. And we understand this about the worship of Israel, particularly as we are familiar with the sacrifice of Christ. The sacrifices of Israel are pointing forward. They're pointing to something greater. And this first fruits offering, as God even indicates under the Old Covenant, has greater implications. You are my first fruits. People are God's first fruits. After Jesus inaugurates a new covenant between God and his people by his death and resurrection, first fruits no longer refer to grain offerings but now in the New Testament to people. So as we transition to the other side of the cross, we come to a text such as 1 Corinthians 15, where, which is built on this theme of first fruits. And let's think of it. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. We see the sequence here. Christ is first. And we see here the idea of one going before, speaking for what is to come. Again, firstfruits now being conceived in terms of people. And Christ being that first sacrifice that bespeaks what is to follow there's a lot we need to bring into this from the old testament context as well as from what the new testament teaches about christ one thing that we need to bring in is this recognition every one of us that we are all sinners and fall short of the glory of god we break the law of god you do and i do God tells us not to lie. God commands that we not take what is not ours. He commands that we not lust. 
bear false witness and the like, but we break His law. We do these things. He commands us to love Him with all of our hearts and to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. And we do not comply. Indeed, in our very nature, we cannot comply. We do not have to work at loving ourselves. And even in the twisted mind of one who takes his or her own life, there is a self-love that is at the heart of it all. This self-love is bound up within us. To love God and others as we love ourselves is something that we don't do. And we learn in Scripture that the wages of sin is death. The natural and just response on God's part is to judge sin with death. It is rebellion against our Creator, our God, and our life giver. So to be separated from Him is death eternally. But in an act of indescribable love and self-sacrifice, Jesus died in our place as sinners in order to pay the penalty of our sins for us. He died as the Lamb of God on Friday as the Passover lambs were being slaughtered in Jerusalem. And on Sabbath, while Jesus' body lay dead in a garden tomb, delegates from the Jewish Sanhedrin walked into a field outside the city of Jerusalem and they ceremonially cut down a sheaf of barley. And according to Edersheim, the grain of that sheaf was then threshed, parched, ground into flour, mixed with oil and frankincense, and weighed before the Lord in the temple. What people did not then recognize, not even Jesus' followers, was that the greater first fruits offering was about to burst out of a garden tomb. Jesus was, would rise as the head of a new humanity that will one day become a full harvest of resurrected souls. Here is the ultimate first fruits offering, our Lord and Savior in His resurrection power. Jesus' resurrection was the first installment. It was the pledge. It was the down payment and the guarantee that all who are united to Him by faith, that all who put their trust, their faith in His death and resurrection will one day rise from the dead in Christ. Notice the phrase here, at His coming. So the New Testament speaks of us, people, in these first fruits terms. Christ, the ultimate first fruits of the resurrection life. The one who comes and consecrates what is coming behind. Those of faith who will also rise eternally with Him. James 1 says, Of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. But we ought always to give thanks, the Apostle Paul writes, to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, clearly, we have a timing issue here as these early converts to Christ were recognized to be the first fruits, those who first trusted in the gospel, and many would come behind them. And so in, in some sense, we are the field that is being harvested for Christ behind these first believers. And in another sense, all of us as followers of Christ are part of this first fruits harvest. And ultimately, again, Christ going before us. But as we think of ourselves as this first fruits offering, we read in Romans chapter 8, Verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. What is that saying? In His resurrection victory, Jesus ascended to heaven, but He also sent His Holy Spirit to dwell in us and to serve as a guarantee of our salvation to come. Our salvation now that we realize and enjoy, but the salvation that is ultimately to be realized, the Spirit within us, there's, there's through His ministry an inward groan 
as we eagerly wait for this ultimate adoption as sons, as we enter into the final victory of Christ's resurrection, that's when we are delivered from sin, when our bodies are, remade, are made new and eternal and glorified. There's a yearning within the heart of every true believer for this redemption, for this adoption of our bodies into the eternal realm. Do you sense it? Is it alive within you? If you cling to this life as your ultimate hope, you are hopeless. But if by the Spirit of God He brings new life into your soul, there is a longing in you to be somewhere else and to be someone else. By God's grace, little by little, in His mercy, He's bringing us and glorifying us to this place where ultimately, in His resurrection victory, Jesus will secure for us as the first fruits the resurrection life. And as He indwells His church, that first fruits orientation, that groaning as we eagerly await our adoption is alive within us. There's a sense that we live for something more. There's a sense that there's a greater hope ahead of us. It's not just what we accomplish in this earth, what we possess in this earth, or how people recognize us on this planet. But it is ultimately about who we are as the first fruits of the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting in His first fruits resurrection from the dead. And so if you're gathered with us here today and you do not know Christ as your Savior, there is not this inner witness of the Spirit of God that you belong to Christ. I mean, think of it in your own mind, in your own soul as you search your heart. Is there that inner witness? I'm not saying that your ears glow. I'm not saying that you always feel happy. But is there some sense that the Spirit of God is witnessing to you, you belong to God? You have been transformed by His Spirit. If that witness is not there, if that trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior from sin and as your only hope for resurrection life, if that's missing, you have nothing to lose and everything to gain. By coming to Christ and embracing His salvation, embracing what He has done to rescue you out of a life of sin and rebellion against God and to bring you into a life of resurrection. Come to Him in faith and in trust today. For those of us who have come to that place, we are the first fruits of the One who is, by virtue of His resurrection, the first fruits from the dead. And there's only one appropriate response, and that is to rejoice to celebrate together, to rejoice in what God has done. We are His people. The only response is to proclaim this truth to others, to seek to bring people to reconciliation to God, and to through that inward groaning of God's Spirit, to say, by His grace and for His glory, be reconciled to God. I think there should be then a first fruits orientation in our lives. God has laid this concept out in the Old Testament. He has nurtured it and developed it into a reference to people in the New Testament. And now for us in our response to this truth, there's to be a first fruits orientation in all that we do. I've been purchased by the one who beat death. I have a future in him. This is who I am in Christ. And it changes everything. It reorders my whole world. Let me bring it to a point here today Then just one area of application. But it's not a mistake that we, on this day of celebration, come with first fruits offerings. For those that have not been walking with us and don't know what we're talking about, we're entering on to a three-year period of unique giving. And we've been talking about this for some time now and we come bring to close today the preparation for those gifts over the next three years. But as we consider our giving as a church, what folly 
it would be for us not to think first of all of ourselves as first fruits gifts to God. To give our best, to give first, to give in worship to the Lord our very lives. He has purchased us for this. And so we should respond. And respond in such a way that says, my time is not mine. My abilities do not belong to me. My material resources are all a gift from God. So we respond uniquely today to celebrate the concept of first fruits in our lives. To do so with every opportunity that we can grasp and hear in this unique way. Banning together as a church through the difficulty of it, through the challenges to our faith to say that over these next three years, by the grace of God, we will lay down gifts. But today, we start that with a first fruits gift. As far as the commitments are concerned, and which have come in, I want to report to you as we finish off this thought here today and uh, bring our focus to it specifically that the Lord has moved us to bring together commitments of just shy of $500,000. And we thank the Lord for that. We were aiming a little bit higher. And I think as we talk about that, in some respects, I think there's very good reason to believe we can reach that goal. Our first goal some years ago was 600000 We came right in at that goal in commitments and gave 100000 above that. And if we would do that this time, we'd be right at the goal. That doesn't matter ultimately what the goal is. What is to be celebrated is God's grace in continuing to produce the grace of giving among us and to say that commitments have been made just shy of $500,000 over these next three years along with our regular giving. And in this, I think we can rejoice. As we give then today a first fruits offering, beginning this flow of harvest and giving, we do so in celebratory thanks to God for the harvest, for what He has provided. We do so in representative consecration of the remaining harvest. We'd like this offering today to be oriented that way, that it is seen as a reflection upon the rest that is given and so it's consecrated to the Lord and we do so clearly in anticipation of his grace into the future the first fruits orientation applies not only to our entire giving program but to every gift along the way as well and we've sought to order it this way such that everything that is given 10% at the top will come off of that gift and go directly into ministry. We look at that then, something as a tithe of every gift to Ministry Advance 2016, viewed as a first fruits gift. To say that we depend upon the Lord to continue to supply, and we put immediately into ministry use 10% off the top of every gift that is given to help us as we finalize and bring to completion the purchase of this building over the next three years, bringing it to a place of comfort for us by God's grace. I don't have to say this to this church. I certainly don't have to say it to those who have stretched and put themselves forward in ways that demand God's grace, but let me say we must plow forward in utter dependence on the Lord of the harvest. We can go forward no other way. Our offering today, and particularly those who lay down first fruits gifts, is intended to demonstrate this dependence. To say that we cannot do this on our own, we must rely upon the Lord of the harvest as He brings in the remaining harvest. So today, now, we will come as we have been prepared over some weeks to receive our first fruits offering. And we're going to do this in silence. 
We do this that we might humble ourselves before the Lord and not be distracted as far as possible by anything outside. But I would encourage you, as we do in just a moment, to bow, perhaps to close your eyes, to meditate. Although you do have to watch when the offering plate comes. But to meditate, and in this way, in silence, to receive this offering as a first fruits gift to the Lord. For those who visit with us, ignore this aspect. There's no need to give uh, at all. But uh, this is what we're about. So we'll receive this in silence, and then we'll dedicate our gifts in song and in prayer as we bring this portion of our service to close. So ushers, if you will come, and let us all bow in silence before the Lord as we give our first fruits gifts to Him. in benediction Father we come before you in absolute dependence there are some in this process that are unable to give above what they regularly give and we bless them and ask that you would bring comfort and strength and wisdom and sanctification and for their good for their blessing, and for your glory. We ask that over these next three years as you give us life together that you would so prosper them that they could begin to participate in ministry advance. I pray, Father, that you will bring strength and wisdom to them. There are those perhaps that have given in ways that do not please you whether giving too much or too little, we do not know and we leave that with you. We just acknowledge that there is a place of conviction by your Spirit and ask that you will continue to stir and change and direct your people. That we would lay down our gifts knowing that we kill idolatries thereby. And knowing that we bring honor and glory to you, the one who supplies every good gift for us to give. Lord, I pray particularly for those who have given in such a way that will demand faith. There are those who have put down commitments and laying down in these plates, they have said no to many good and wonderful things that our money can purchase. Lord, we come to You in utter dependence asking that those gifts would be rewarded by Your grace not necessarily with more money, but Lord, with a sense of the joy of partnering with You in the work that You're doing in this world. An investment in the stabilization of the local church that Your Gospel may go forward and the ministry of grace through the church taking place in the lives of people throughout the world and here particularly at this beachhead. We plead, Father, that You would so enable us to fulfill these commitments. We pray that You will enable us and encourage us to see our resources as being used in, part, in partnership with Your cause and Your purposes. We pray, God, that You will help us to think innovatively and in a way that places trust wholly upon You to provide. It is a privilege to partner together in this way to partner with each other is a source of great encouragement and strength. How much we can accomplish with each other that we could never accomplish on our own. But Father, we acknowledge before You that it is a great privilege to partner with You. When we think of the widow who put in the two copper coins, and we know that she gave to a system that was very corrupt, and yet, Father, You accounted to her eternal giving. We realize likewise, Father, and thank You that though we do not believe in any way that our church is so corrupt, we recognize, however, that we are sinners. 
We recognize that we make mistakes. We recognize this is not a perfect church. But we have gathered here before you, Father, this day to say that Jesus Christ is our Lord and Savior. And we are striving by your grace to order this congregation and this outpost of the gospel in a way that pleases you and in a way that is in accord with your word. As we strive to be faithful to that word and as we strive to live out lives of holiness, we thank you that despite the weaknesses and the imperfections of this church, these gifts are laid down as a gift to you. And we pray that as you accepted the small offering, but the magnificent offering of that widow, that you will so receive our meager gifts and allow us to have the sense of joy of partnering with you in what is accomplished in the days ahead. We pray for Eden Baptist Church not simply to celebrate ourselves, but we pray for this assembly that we might together make a significant turn at this point in our journey to increase our ministry opportunities throughout the world. And as we talk tonight about our first First Fruits Project, as we come alongside the persecuted church in India as your people determined to do that, I pray that you would allow this gift of help to another local assembly in a place of persecution to serve as a first fruits offering. And, or whatever you lead us to do, that in all of it, it would be a pledge of what is to come and an act of utter dependence upon you to supply. Aid our thinking to this end, Father, and enable us to live out our lives together in a way that continues to advance the cause of our Savior. We dedicate these gifts in the Spirit, asking that you will pour out your blessing and your grace for the days ahead, and that we will trust you. Above all, we thank you for our Savior, who though he was rich, became poor, that through his poverty we might be rich. And Father, today as we lay down the gifts that could purchase pleasures in this world. We do so with great thanksgiving and confidence that you are the greatest pleasure for eternity. And in you, and in our relationship with you, we rest and dedicate these gifts. For the honor and glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise God from whom.